Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shemitah Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. We start today with the political battle over the open seat at the U.S. Supreme Court. President Donald Trump is saying that by the end of this week, you're going to know who his pick is and how Republicans plan to get that woman on the bench. I'm going to make a decision on either Friday or Saturday. I will Mm -hmm. announce it either Friday or Saturday. The president went on Fox and Friends on Monday to lay out his timeline. He says he wants the Senate to vote on his nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg before Election Day to get a young justice on the bench as soon as possible, a woman who he says could potentially serve for decades to come. The president says he has five potential nominees. Now, Trump didn't give a full list, but he suggests Judge Barbara Lagoa, who currently serves on the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, that she is a contender. NBC News and several other outlets are reporting Judge Amy Coney Barrett is also a top pick on Trump's list. She presides over the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Both of these women are federal appellate judges. They serve one level below the Supreme Court. And Reuters profiles both of them and breaks down their judicial records. Now, Barrett clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia. She's 48 years old. She was a finalist to fill Anthony Kennedy's seat in 2018. Brett Kavanaugh eventually got that seat. And Reuters describes her as a devout Roman Catholic, someone known for her conservative religious views. Yeah, but her faith has been a sticking point for some of her critics. They want to know whether she'll base her legal decisions on her religious beliefs or on the law. Mm -hmm. Now, Barrett tried to put those concerns to rest during her confirmation to the circuit court. I would faithfully apply all Supreme Court precedent. But abortion rights groups have expressed concerns that putting Barrett on the Supreme Court could mean the end of Roe v. Wade. They've pointed to her record as a federal judge. She has signaled her opposition to abortion in related rulings, and she's called for courts to consider requiring things like burial or cremation of fetal remains. Now let's turn to Judge Lagoa. She was the first Hispanic woman to serve on Florida's Supreme Court. She was appointed as a federal judge in December 2019, and Reuters reports Selecting a Latina judge from Florida could help Trump win over voters in what's a crucial battleground state. Lagoa's parents fled from Cuba under Fidel Castro's communist regime. And Reuters explains her parents' experiences shaped many of her views and her career path. Here she is on the day she was nominated to the Florida Supreme Court. In the country my parents fled, the whim of a single individual could mean the difference between food or hunger, liberty or prison, life or death. In our great country and our great state, we are governed by the rule of law. Lagoa has less experience than Barrett, but she recently made news. Lagoa was part of the court that upheld a Florida law requiring people who've been convicted of a felony to pay all fines and fees in order to have their voting rights restored. A University of Richmond law professor told Reuters Lagoa is seen as a judge who would reliably vote conservative on the Supreme Court. They are some of the biggest banks in the world. J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, Standard Chartered, Deutsche Bank and Bank of New York Mellon. You know their names. But do you know the U.S. Treasury Department suspects these banks may be playing a role in financing terror networks and drug cartels? 
More than 100 news organizations teamed up to analyze tens of thousands of leaked documents that paint a troubling picture of some of America's biggest banks. Those documents relate to the work of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. That's the agency within the Treasury Department that's in charge of investigating money laundering, the financing of armed groups, and other financial crimes. Now, BuzzFeed was the first news outlet to get their hands on these documents, which are being referred to as the FinCEN files. They're made up mostly of suspicious activity reports. That's S-A-R, usually called SARS for short. U.S. law requires banks to file SARS when they spot transactions that have signs of money laundering or other financial misconduct. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to know by themselves, SARS are not evidence of a crime. You want to think of them as the first step in a process that's supposed to stop drug lords, human traffickers, and other nefarious actors from paying for goods and services. The files are normally kept super secret, which is why this investigation is so important. We never get to see SARS. Mm -hmm. And even though this investigation looked at tens of thousands of them, these files only represent a tiny fraction. I'm talking about less than 0.02% of the more than 12 million suspicious activity reports that financial institutions filed between 2011 and 2017. You can expect a lot more journalism to come out of what's in the FinCEN files, because after BuzzFeed got a hold of them, it shared them with the International Consortium for Investigative Journalism, which brought on more than 100 news outlets across 88 countries. And together, they spent a year reviewing the documents. And essentially, they found a pattern. After banks identified suspicious activity and reported it, they failed to take any other steps to stop it. To quote the consortium, the documents show how banks' profit motives overwhelm their legal obligations to stop dirty money. Yeah, the suspicious activity reports in the FinCEN files identified more than $2 trillion in transactions between 1999 and 2017. And as BuzzFeed reports, banks collected fees on all of those transactions. Every so often on this show, we like to acknowledge a praiseworthy act of journalism. It's our way of shouting out a reporter or a newsroom that's doing exceptional work. Today, we're going to give a nod to a whole class of hardworking press people, student journalists. Elahi Azadi has a story out in The Washington Post, and it calls student journalists today's best watchdogs. And this is especially true as colleges and universities start their fall semester during a pandemic. Now, she credits several student papers for breaking important stories, like the Daily Gamecock at the University of South Carolina. Earlier this month, their newsroom called out university officials for withholding information about clusters of COVID-19 cases. Some of these student papers have made national headlines not just for their hyper-local scoops, but also for editorials. The student-run paper that serves the University of Notre Dame, St. Mary's, and Holy Cross, it's called The Observer, ran a front-page editorial a few weeks ago, saying university leaders have not adequately prepared for the return to in-person classes. And the editorial, the whole paper, it started with this one stark sentence in huge print— Don't make us write obituaries. You know, these student reporters, editors, and photojournalists are sharpening their skills at a time when the local news business is shrinking. More than 50 local newsrooms across the country have shut down during the pandemic, which is why it's especially heartening to see student newsrooms step up to the moment and even branch out to cover communities around their campuses. For example, The Alligator, which is the student paper at the University of Florida, 
recently added new beats to cover the Gainesville area. Their editor-in-chief says they're trying to be both the college paper and the community paper. Izadi writes, college newspapers have long been filled with journalists who sometimes think of the school newspaper as their actual major, which is deeply relatable for anyone who's worked on their campus paper, myself included. Shout out to the Daily Pennsylvanian. And Izadi goes on to say, these students are now feeling the added pressure of covering the pandemic. The political fight to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has got many people on the left talking about adding more seats to the Supreme Court, something that hasn't been seriously considered since the 1930s. There's a pretty interesting article in National Geographic. It notes, while the Supreme Court has been made up of nine justices since 1869, there's nothing in the Constitution that makes that number a requirement. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Throughout the country's history, the court has gone from as few as five seats to as many as 10 Shemitah. Yeah, and this article explains the court's evolution and how it's been shaped and reshaped by legislation over the years. And it touches on several more recent proposals to change the court, including Pete Buttigieg's plan to expand it to 15 justices, five who are affiliated with Democrats, five with Republicans, and five who are supposed to be apolitical. So read up about this, because as this nomination fight heats up, the number of justices is an issue that's probably going to receive a lot of attention. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.